Welcome to the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, this is episode four of the Horizon series, and it's called Forgiving Hierarchy, Honing the Blade of Mythic Play. So uh, if you're new to the Horizon series, these are basically a series of essays that I wrote between January and February of 2023. And after I wrote them, I went and I sat four days in darkness, um, and it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. I then came back into a chaotic year and didn't get back to writing, and I'm about to go back into the darkness in a couple of days, this time for six days. And I had the insight or the whisper to reread all of these essays and to record them as episodes and then to work with my friend Graham, who is also my producer, to release an episode each day that I'm in the darkness. Because it was through this writing, um, these essays, that the idea of the Dharma artist came through. And the big thing that I'm going to be doing on the other side of this initiation in the darkness for six days is I'm going to be teaching um, my curriculum that is really like the culmination of my life's work to help basically, this is the way I'm writing it to myself, is I'm teaching the models, systems, and tools to help Dharma artists fuck the future alive. Uh, the problem that I see is that we live in a time with very inadequate myths and not a lot of many great myth makers. And I think the heroes of the 21st century are going to be mythic artists, artists that really understand myths and how to use myths to fuck the world alive. So uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Because the key part of being a Dharma artist is you don't get caught in the spiritual trap that every perspective is equally true or equally untrue if you ascribe to postmodernism. And there are so many spiritual people who have good hearts, who are stuck in this trap. And the way that you heal this trap is you claim your dharma as the most important perspective for you to cultivate. And to be able to share it like an artist with the humility and the audaciousness of mythic play is a requirement. And so these essays are trying, is me actively trying to work out what is a dharma artist? And how do we become one? Because I think it's one of the most important archetypes of the types of professions that will help humanity through the next 100 years that I think are gonna be crazy. And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you wanna hear my post-darkness recap, and a deep dive into my uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th. You can go to my website, ericgotzi.com, and click on the header at the top of the page that's called February 20th Masterclass. Again, if you want to hear 
what the darkness was like. And if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th, go to my website, erigatsi.com, and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. So let's get to it. In my previous episode, we explored how the hero's journey is an incomplete story for our times. The story of our time requires a more mature type of consciousness that goes one step beyond the hero's journey, and that is the thrice-born consciousness. When we've had our worldview broken twice, the third time that we rebuild, we have the opportunity to notice a fundamental truth about reality. We are not our story. We are not our myth. We are the thing that myth makes. We are the myth maker. This insight is the birth of the capacity of mythic play. Mythic play is the ability to freely play with different perspectives. Most physicists have done this for almost a hundred years. When they look at phenomena that is larger than an atom, they use Newtonian and Einsteinian models to understand how shit moves. When observing phenomena smaller than atoms, they use quantum mechanics. Depending on the type of experience, they can switch between their models. This is called model agnosticism. As a metaphor for mythic play, model agnosticism is like the cocoon stage of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Agnosticism is defined as a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known about anything beyond material phenomena. A person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God, end quote. The freedom to choose any perspective is a radical transformation for anyone who gets stuck in a specific worldview. But the cost, however, is that agnosticism is not a map. It doesn't tell you where to go or what to do. It simply says, this is not that. And that is a map that can get you lost. True mythic play would be better defined as model pragmatism. Pragmatism is defined as, quote, an approach that assesses the truth or meaning of theories or beliefs in terms of the success of their practical application. If model agnosticism is the absence of a map, pragmatism is the act of creating a map by walking a path. The difference between agnosticism and pragmatism is hierarchy. Agnosticism says, I can't know. So it could be anything. Pragmatism says, I don't know, but here is what I've tried. Here is what happened. And this path is better than this path because I've tried both and this path worked. Poof, hierarchy. Why are we talking about this? One, we live in a time without a functioning global mythology. Number two, and it's killing us, but we can do something about it. And number three, to do so, we've got to acquire the ability to mythically play. This article is about what to do once you have the ability for mythic play. And hint, you gotta get over your fears and your grievances with hierarchy and begin to create your own. This is nothing less than taking responsibility for creating your personal mythology. Mythic play 
coupled with mythic pragmatism, allows for mythic collaboration. And mythic collaboration is the prerequisite for humanity as a species to navigate the 21st century. And these articles are for people who want to contribute to that work. Addressing and dressing our collective wound with hierarchy. Hierarchy in its most fundamental form is that some qualia of experience is given more value or importance than another. For most, examples that come to mind quickly would be gold, silver, and bronze medals, or the organizational structures of companies. In the last few years, many people, when hearing the word hierarchy, they think of racism, sexism, and all other expressions of inequality. Some people's first associated thought to hierarchy is the shadow side of patriarchy, and this word becomes a placeholder for the collective atrocities that humans have committed against other humans spanning recorded history. Millions of deaths and enough tragedy to break your heart are placed at the hands of hierarchy. But hierarchy is not always bad. Hierarchy is encoded into our biology. There is a hierarchy of development that guides the creation of a human in utero. Hierarchy is built into our neurology and is the reason that we are able to literally see. Hierarchy is built into our cognition and to the degree that we have a coherent thought, it is due to a vast unconscious hierarchy of filters and heuristics. And this is not an opinion, this is scientific fact. And if you're interested in 25 hours of one of the best living scientists talking about this, you can watch John Verveke's YouTube series called Awakening to the Meaning Crisis. By the way, if you have listened to Verveke's 25 hours of the meaning crisis, you and I are kin, and I love you. The gist is this, in any given moment, there is a functionally infinite array of possible things that you could notice, see, think, feel, and desire. Without a hierarchy of value, you could not get out of bed, brush your teeth, or read this text. We are all living inside of a hierarchy of value. Consciousness without a hierarchy of value is to be functionally paralyzed. Order and hierarchy are synonymous. While hierarchy enables cognition and vision and action, it does have a dark side. The dark side of hierarchy is racism, sexism, and all other expressions of inequality. It is in fact true that one could persuasively argue that all of the atrocities in history are the results of the dark side of hierarchy. However, the trap is to respond to the dark side of hierarchy with model agnosticism, moral relativism, or postmodernism. The essence of these perspectives is confusion, an increased likelihood for depression or anxiety, and a pervasive feeling of being adrift in meaninglessness. The consciousness that is capable of contributing to a new collective myth will need to accept the responsibility of mythic pragmatism and of contributing to a new hierarchy of values. The tension is that we require hierarchies of values to function and they can grow and twist themselves into murderous systems of tyranny.
a map of consciousness for the 21st century mythic artist. If we go back to the first article in this series called Skyscrapers and Cathedrals, and we reconnect to the task of our times, it is to co-create a new cultural myth that is nourishing enough to create multi-generational works, which are symbolically understood as cathedrals. In order to do that, we need a myth that feeds the four mythological functions that Joseph Campbell outlined. The thrice-born journey is capable of fulfilling the first two mythic functions, which is the personal and the metaphysical. But in order to fulfill the last two, which are the cosmological and the sociological, we are going to have to work together and we're going to have to embrace some kind of hierarchy of value. Levels one and two can be done personally. Levels three and four are collective projects. In this section, I'm going to share one of the best maps that I have found for beginning to construct a hierarchy of value on which we can begin to collaborate with one another as we strive to perform our little part in the construction of the future cathedral. This map is not a hierarchy of value. Rather, it is a map of the development of our personal consciousness and that there is a type of perspective that must be reached in order to begin the task of creating a new myth that can fulfill the third and the fourth function of myths. And this map is called the Stages Matrix. There is an entire branch of psychology that tries to map the stages of development that humans go through as they grow. This field, unsurprisingly, is called developmental psychology. It is defined as, quote, the scientific study of how and why humans grow, change, and adapt across the course of their lives. If you go to my website and click on the article that's called Forgiving Hierarchy, you will find that there is a link to an interview with Dr. Robert Keegan, who is one of the great living luminaries of this field, and it is a great introduction to developmental psychology. Developmental psychology is one of the most interesting and useful branches of psychology. Some names in the field that you would recognize would be people like Darwin or Freud, but most of the leaders in this field throughout the last 100 years have not made their way into the public psyche. Maybe you've heard of Piaget or Erickson, but you almost assuredly haven't heard of Jane Lovinger, Suzanne Cook Gruder, or Terry O'Fallon. I'm not going to take us through the history of developmental psychology in this podcast, but what we're going to talk about here is how Buddhism has been working on a developmental psychology map for 2,600 years and that the stages matrix is the most scientifically robust map that the Western world has created that integrates Buddhism. Buddhism has been mapping the development of consciousness for almost 3,000 years. In the last few decades, science has begun to test the techniques and the practices of Buddhism, and to put it lightly, Buddhist practices, especially mindfulness, insight, and meta-compassion meditations, improve almost every measurable biological and cognitive marker that we are able to test for in psychology. To put it lightly, it works. The stages matrix has been a map that has been honed through three generations of women, 
and this is the only model in psychology that I'm aware of that has been exclusively curated by females, which I think is a very interesting finding. Lovinger was the mentor to Cook Gruder, who was the mentor to O'Fallon. Through this matriarchal lineage, the stages matrix eventually grew to incorporate the essence of Buddhist teachings. The result is that this is one of the most valid and reliable developmental tests that we can give people to measure what level of development their consciousness is currently at. And here are a few citations for the skeptics listening. You can go to the blog post on my website and click on the links. Quote, Studies of this model include at least 400 studies and half a dozen meta-analyses, making it arguably the most extensively validated projective technique in the field. Murray and O'Fallon summarize prior research on this model for inter-rater reliability, internal consistency, test-retest reliability, face validity, construct validity, incremental validity, clinical utility, and predictive validity, all supporting Westenberg's conclusion that, quote, the findings of over 350 empirical studies generally support the critical assumptions underlying the ego development construct. Clinical research with this model has indicated that certain diagnoses are more connected with pathology at certain developmental stages and that there is a clear decrease in symptom severity in those who have higher levels of identity development, aka the more you move up through this map, the less likely you are to suffer from mental illness. And you can read a journal publication that I have linked that shows all of this, aka this is an incredible map and probably the best map for the development of the ego that you've never heard of. So what? The stages matrix maps the development of how our ego evolves its point of view. Jane Lovinger defined an ego level as, quote, an organizing function or filter that the individual uses to interpret life experiences and to generate meaning. Now we're going to get into the stages. Level one, first person perspective, and this is called the impulsive perspective. The hallmark of this stage, and it's normally the onset at age two to four, and about 5% of adults get stuck here. The hallmark of this stage of development is that our neurology acquires enough architecture and experience to birth what we will call the myth maker. This is the aspect of the psyche that feels like an individual entity. It's the ego. Some would call this the ego, but some would also call this the small self. What's important to know about this stage is, one, this is the beginning of myth-making. This is the power to categorize phenomena with language. There is a parable that captures this. A boy is out bird-watching with his dad. The first time the boy sees a bird, he is wide-eyed, confused, and excited by the twists and spirals the animal gracefully moves through to land on a branch. He points and explains to his dad to look. His dad looks and tells the boy that this animal is called a falcon. When the child reaches level one perspective, he is able to categorize the animal into the linguistic box of bird. 
As the parable goes, this is the moment that the child loses the ability to truly see the splendor of the animal. It becomes the linguistic category, bird. For humans to navigate reality, we have to learn to filter the infinite into the finite through categorization and language. As we'll see, many of the more mature developmental stages will require us to learn how to step out of our myth-making. Number two, this stage confuses causality. The other hallmark of this first stage is that the myth-making self has not yet fully differentiated its myth-making from the external world. This is called, quote, magical thinking, which is when a child believes its thoughts and feelings directly interact with the world. Side note, some spiritual people get stuck here. An example of this may be as benign as believing its crying produces mom to appear and to care for the child. On the traumatic end, any painful experience that happens to the child due to bad luck or lack of care from a parent will often be internalized as caused by the child, and this can be the root of psychosis that emerges later in life. This stage is called impulsive because the child is beginning to learn that it does have some causal effect on reality, but it doesn't yet understand that there are genuine others who have their own desires and wills and causal agency. Thus we get the label terrible twos. The beautiful seed germinating in this stage is that with more development, the child will begin to learn that it can indeed act to change the world around it. This is the birth of what is called self-efficacy, and it is a fundamental skill in being a competent, healthy, and able human being. Perspective 1.2, and this is called the opportunistic. This onsets in older children, and about 5% of the adult population is stuck here. At this stage, the myth-maker is beginning to learn that there are social norms and rules this is the beginning of the birth of the persona, the socially constructed mask that we learn to develop to navigate social relationships. For children, this often is the stage that they begin to acquire the ability to lie. They have the impulse to take a cookie, but they don't yet have the strategic capacity to understand that the parents will notice, and when confronted, they will say that they didn't take it while they have a smudge of chocolate that hangs at the edge of their mouth. This is normal. What is not normal is that 5% of adults get stuck here. An adult that is stuck at this stage will tend to be manipulative, exploitive, and if caught or confronted will only respond in anger or denial. Behind the persona is a deep fear and an insecurity. Adults who get stuck here tend to have dramatically dysfunctional familial relationships, and they can be helped to develop beyond this stage with compassion and loving guidance. The beautiful seed germinating in this stage is the capacity, through maturation, to develop what is called, quote, a theory of mind, which is the cognitive capacity that allows us to take other people's perspectives. And this is the birth of friendships, romantic partnerships, and the ability to create art. The next stage is a combination of two stages because what the research of this stage finds is that they're commonly bound together. And it is called the 2.0 slash 2.5 perspective, 
also known as the rule conformist and the diplomat. And again, these two stages are combined for convenience because the research shows that they tend to be bound together. This is the stage where the mythmaker is able to internalize the rules of society and they are able to begin to integrate their pure desires into what's expected of them or what is quote-unquote normal. So the gift of this stage is a fully developed theory of mind. For a child, this is the beginning of learning that mom is happier when the child cleans up after itself or that dad gets mad when the child screams in the grocery store. And so the child begins to conform its raw desires with the internally generated expectation of the parents or the peer group. With friends, this might manifest as choosing to share a toy with another child because it will bring the other child joy. Children who reach this stage of development have the opportunity to join a peer group. And this is super important. Children who do not acquire the capacity to join a peer group and to play with other children tend to have incredibly hard developmental problems as they get older. So the second skill at this stage is the ability to fit into a peer group. And this is a super important part of our development. It cannot be understated how important it is for our development to find a place in a peer group. A tremendous amount of learning happens in peer groups. In peer groups, the child must learn an entirely new game than the one that it learned at home. Competition, cooperation, and complex play become available. However, the shadow of this stage is that the persona grows. To the degree the peer group provides meaning, security, and purpose to the child is the degree that the child will be tempted to abandon their own boundaries and their own genuine expression to be accepted. Research has found that about 10% of adults are still stuck at this level of development. That's about 20 million people. Adults at this stage are still in their first myth. They tend to use words like us when they talk about their peer group. An exaggerated example of this are sports fans who say we lost today, but they haven't played the sport since they were 13. The key confusion at this stage is that the individual confuses themselves with their peer group and they deny their genuine individuation process. The beautiful seed that is germinating at this stage is that with maturation, the individual will begin to learn to both navigate their peer groups while also cultivating a unique, authentic expression, their true self that lives behind the persona. And thus, the next stage is the birth of third-person perspective, and this is what is called the expert stage. About 37% of the adult population is currently at this stage. So the move from the 2.5 diplomat to the 3.0 expert is the first revolutionary transformation of the mythmaker. This stage is the birth of third-person perspective. Third-person perspective is often the trigger for the, quote, descent into the non-ordinary world as mapped out by the hero's journey. The third-person perspective is the birth of introspection, the ability to navigate one's subtle inner world, which begins the journey of discovering the first hints of their authentic self. They begin to recognize how they are different than their peer group, 
and this is often the cause for the dissent. This knowledge can be anxiety-producing if the individual fears that they will be judged and potentially exiled for their differences. This knowledge can also produce feelings of loneliness if we are unable or unwilling to integrate and how we are different from the peer group. However, this often produces a feeling of uniqueness and can be the birth of the truly authentic, unique, artistic self. Kagan, one of the godfathers of developmental psychology, describes how this stage used to be an adept level of development for pre-modern societies. This stage allows for true forethought, planning, accountability, and responsibility. However, as we saw in the thrice-born map, this is not an adapt level of development for the world that we find ourselves in today. The beautiful seed at this stage is that with maturation, the individual can achieve what Keegan calls self-authoring. The next stage is the 3.5 stage, also what is called the achiever. About 30% of the adult population is at this level. Many developmental psychologists have remarked that this is the level of development that classic Western culture aspires to bring its citizens to. This is the level of development that the self reaches after they have completed their first cycle of the hero's journey. The achiever, what Keegan calls self-authoring, has developed the ability to internally represent an ideal version of themselves. They begin to be able to navigate, quote-unquote, the future to guide their actions. They are able to navigate the past in order to learn or heal certain blocks that keep them from becoming more of who they want to be. They develop the ability to genuinely move beyond their race or nationalism and see a connection with other groups of people. They want to help the world. They develop the ability to honor and move in accord with their inner compass. This is the level most people are at who enjoy self-improvement books, podcasts, courses, and experiences that are transformational. The shadow of this stage is guilt, because now that they have a deep sense of who they could be and how they want to help the world, when they feel that they are falling short of that ideal, it can cause shame or guilt. Some core confusions at this stage are, one, a belief in the perfectibility of the human condition. Does that sound familiar? Number two, they can become trapped in their personal vision of the future. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't understand that ideas can be stolen and they may plagiarize without realizing that they are doing so. And number four is they struggle to notice that other people are at their level or higher. And this brings us to the 4.0 stage, which is called the pluralist stage. And this is the birth of what I would call IFS consciousness, which is internal family systems. This will make sense. So just wait. About 10% of the adult population is here. This is the stage where the birth of the fourth person perspective arises and it is the beginning of what is called systems thinking. With systems thinking, causality moves from Newtonian physics to ecologies. Instead of simply seeing A as influencing B, there is a shift to be able to see that A influences B, that influences C, that influences A, that influences B. 
This kind of transformation of causality allows engineers to create complex artificial intelligence. It allows biologists to understand ecologies, and it allows psychologists to start to use systems like internal family systems to understand individual consciousness. This stage of development begins to widen the individual's compassion and allows them not to fall into the trap of the fundamental misattribution error. Whereas stage 3.5 individuals tend to enjoy and consume self-improvement material that helps them create their ideal future, individuals at the 4.0 stage tend to enjoy and consume self-improvement material that helps people deepen into the present moment. This is the difference between people who would rather listen to Tony Robbins talk about how to be successful and the people who would rather read about Ram Dass and how to be here now. People at this stage tend to resonate with Eastern traditions like Buddhism and modern therapies that bring them into the present moment like somatic experiencing or compassionate inquiry. The major confusions at this stage are one, they confuse model agnosticism with model pragmatism. This is an important confusion to take time highlighting. The birth of the 4.0 perspective is significantly liberating when glimpsed for the first time because it can free us from our current myth, our current peer group. However, the conclusion many people draw here that is a trap is that they believe that all perspectives are equally subjective, therefore no perspective can be more true than another, and this can leave you lost. This conclusion, without the individual recognizing it, can paralyze them. They are not able to harness the 3.5 perspective anymore, and they can't justify to themselves that they should desire anything because it's not valid. And so their personal dreams and aspirations are just cultural constructs. Another shade of this confusion is that people at this stage can point out other people's subjective bias, often the people that they see as their enemies, and they can deceive themselves that they are not just as biased as those that they critique. This is best exemplified by anyone who identifies with a political position criticizing the echo chamber of the other side. So like a libertarian critiquing the Republican echo chamber but not realizing that they're in their own echo chamber. This stage is the birth, but not the integration of mythic play. The beautiful seed here is the potential to become a mythic artist. The next stage is the 4.5 stage, which is called the strategist, and about 5% of the adult population is here. This stage of development, Keegan calls the honor tract for the current cultural curriculum. This stage has included and transcended the dizzying pluralistic world back into its authentic self and thus recaptured their desire to individuate, not as an isolated individual, but as an integral part of the interpenetrating interconnectedness of humanity as a whole. People at this level have integrated their quote-unquote internal family they know that they will still experience painful and triggering emotions and experiences, but they are capable of navigating them in healthy, pro-social ways. They also feel a powerful desire to help others in a systematic way, 
they begin to feel called to become psychologists, coaches, and consultants, and they reach executive leadership positions in healthy organizations. They've also realized that life is not a journey to a destination, but rather a kind of open-ended jazz collaboration with all people and contexts that they find themselves in relationship with. No stage is perfect, and this one has its own confusions. One of the major confusions of this stage is that they miss noticing that they project their subtle inner feelings onto others, but not to individuals, but onto collective systems. They can demonize or idolize different complex systems, such as nature is perfect if we just left it alone, or capitalism is fundamentally corrupt and we have to get rid of it completely. They tend to not project their inner content onto individuals. Rather, they project their complex internal feelings onto systems. The beautiful seed beginning to sprout in this stage, if matured, is the ability to become aware of their awareness. The 5.0 level, which is called construct aware or fifth person perspective, about 1% of the adult population is here. And this is the stage that is the perspective that Buddhist's eightfold path attempts to bring people to. Dzogchen is considered the most refined version of the Buddhist teaching for bringing people to this perspective. And basically, without getting into the details, this is the perspective that can start to become aware that you can have a thought about having a thought about a thought. Or you can start to have a feeling about feeling a feeling. And it's where you can basically take any type of thought process and make it something that you can observe. And to most people, this isn't gonna make any sense. Um, and to a few people, it's going to give you goosebumps because uh, the first time that you experience this type of consciousness, at least the way it came in me, is uh, I felt psychotic. And it led to a eight month schizoid episode. And the only reason that I tasted this level of consciousness is because I ate too many mushrooms. And um, just real quick, something that's worth knowing is that there's a difference between states and views of consciousness. And I hope this doesn't confuse you, but basically a view is your stabilized awareness at a specific level. You can have a temporary state of consciousness where you can skip up multiple levels. And this tends to happen when you're in altered states of consciousness. And so I wanna be super clear. My perspective is not stable at 5.0. That would be a lie. But I have had states of consciousness where I've been at this level and often what happens is it feels like you're going insane. Uh, but let me just read what I wrote for this level. A 5.0 perspective is the first taste of thrice-born consciousness. It is the myth maker tasting for the first time that the truth of what they are is not any story or myth or belief system. They are that which all stories and myths and beliefs and emotions and sensations arise from. We'll talk more about this at the end, about the difference between states and views, but this is a perspective many on the spiritual path have glimpsed, but almost no one currently lives their lives at this level. 
The goal of something like Dzogchen is to consistently return to this perspective over and over again for years and decades, and by doing so, we can gradually extend how long we can stay in this perspective and decrease how long we can go between remembering. A great read for Westerners on this perspective is touched in Sam Harris's book, Waking Up. The core confusion of this stage is that people may believe that they are going insane, and in the presence of a mature container, they can be guided through this experience. But in our culture, people who touch this stage tend to be hospitalized or medicated against their will. The other confusion at this stage is that people confuse their authentic self-authoring self with awareness itself. And again, this will not make sense for most people, but I'm just going to go through it. In internal family systems language, this would be to confuse your capital S self with awareness itself. And Harris's book does a good job at repeatedly highlighting this confusion. An important note, the stages matrix validity studies confirm the validity and reliability of the test of the perspectives up to the 4.5 stage. This current stage, 5.0 and beyond, it goes all the way up to fucking eight. Those are not as supported by evidence yet, but they're trying to do research on it. So what's important for people listening to this is the goal should be to get to the 4.5 perspective. And the essence of the 4.5 perspective is essentially you're able to see from any perspective, which is the gift of 4.0, but you're not trapped in meaninglessness and postmodernism. There are so many culture-changing artists who are stuck at 4.0 because they can't justify to themselves why they should pursue their dharma when children are being bombed in Gaza, or why people are being starved in Africa, or why slaves mine cobalt in Africa. But the fact is that this world needs artists who are on fire with their dharma and who don't get caught in specific worldviews. And the other thing to anchor to is that the research is robust. The higher that you can bring your ego into this map, the less likely you are to suffer from mental illness. And so the goal is learn the map, check it out, do some research. Uh, if you want to go deep on this stuff, you can check out Ken Wilber's entire catalog of books of what he calls integral theory. It's probably the best articulation of this map. And so, if you're still listening, I hope you enjoyed episode four. Uh, if you want more resources, go check out the blog post. I have a bunch of citations that you can click on. And if you're still listening to this and you feel called to work with other people who are trying to get to the 4.5 perspective and turn their artistic passions into vocations, uh, check out my mental fitness program that we are going to be running in March. Uh, I'm super excited for it. And if you're listening to this before February 20th, uh, if you want to hear my post-darkness recap and a deep dive into my uh, mental fitness curriculum that I'll be teaching and starting on March 10th, you can go to my website, ericgotzi.com, and click on the header at the top of the page that's called February 20th Masterclass. Again, if you want to hear 
what the darkness was like. And if you want to get a deep dive on the curriculum that I'll be teaching about how to become a Dharma artist, and it's before February 20th, go to my website, erigatsi.com, and click on the link at the top of the page that says February 20th Masterclass. And uh, also, if you're listening to this on the day that it came out, I'm on day four of my darkness retreat and send me some love. I'm going to need it.